Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Welcome to IEEE Software Balls Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Joel. Um, I guess I'm an independent artist and researcher, and I'm kind of working in a few different areas right now. Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you first, um, have you ever heard about robotics when you were a child? What is the feeling you had about robotics or intelligent machine? Yeah, so actually um, robotics was what got me into computer science. So I studied mm-hmm. computer science in college, but in high school, I really spent most of my time doing, you know, there's like the, the FTC robotics and in the kind of those robotics leagues. So that was really my in to programming was, was interested in programming, you know, high school robotics in the beginning. So I haven't really done as much robotics since then, but um, it was something I was very into and got me into it. And so, but I, you know, going into college, I um, thought computer science would be kind of, I kind of got into computer science for robotics and I kind of went with it from there. But I do, you know, really enjoy robotics. I do follow some of the soft robotics stuff um, mm-hmm. that's coming out now and, and find it very inspiring. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So I would like to ask you because you really work in really interesting um, aspect about combining art and AI, and this is really interesting um, stream in, in artificial intelligence. But I would like to ask you first, how you become interested in this combination as an artist in doing this kind of work in combination with artificial intelligence uh, algorithm that we will speak later. But how you come in this area in particular? Sure. So I think um, like the the shorter length answer is, um, well, so, you know, I think I I had a background um, in sculpture and also in programming. And I think, you know, going back to when I was like, you know, in high school, and I think over time, those things started to merge in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think I just, you know, I have kind of... um, a love of sculpture and I also, you know, just found programming this like infinitely expressive medium. And then, you know, after college they started coming together um via kind of biological systems and the idea of emergence and complexity. And so I actually got into AI through genetic algorithms. That was kind of I mean I'm not, not an AI researcher I should say, but um you know, genetic algorithms something I got, I got very into as a means of kind of combining programming and sculpture, um, specifically looking at emergence and complexity and optimization. And then, you know, from genetic algorithms, uh, I started looking at what's happening in machine learning and just started thinking of energy ways of combining the two. Um, and then I kind of just slid into accidentally, I guess, the machine learning side of things. But uh, it was it was never intentional. Mm-hmm. So I would like to ask you how you became interested in the combination of art and 
artificial intelligence? Is it was easy for you when you started this career? Because maybe at, at early days, it was not really interesting uh, for the community, but now it's become very hot topic. So it was difficult for you uh, to find your niche in this two different area to become merged. So I think I stumbled into it um, by trying to do something else, actually. Mm. Um, so it's a bit of a winding path um, where after college, um, you know, so I studied computer science and art um, undergrad. And then I was always interested in sculpture and also in um, programming. Um, mm. So I always found programming a very creative, expressive medium, and I've always just had an, an interest in sculpture, and that's kind of why I studied this kind of combined computer science art degree. And then after university, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I ended up working in bioinformatics for a while, and then that ended up becoming a bit of a a way of combining those other interests, where you know through the lens of complexity and emergence, kind of. Um, using code and simulation to, to generate forms and to kind of unify these different interests. And so I got very interested in you know, emergence and complexity um, and systems as a way of, you know, thinking about the um, thing about form, almost from like a kind of systems approach. And then that got me very into the genetic algorithms mm -hmm. world um, and evolution and then interactive evolution. And then, while I was kind of in that, I started seeing what was going on in the machine learning side of world, of world, and I started, you know, getting inspired by ways that, you know, it could be incorporated into the genetic algorithms side of things. And so I was very interested in, you know, with these ideas of, of I guess, growth and computation and form, uh, and then tools for interacting with those things. And so I just kind of saw the machine learning as a, as a part of that puzzle of how, how it could fit in. And so I just started experimenting originally. Um, that's what kind of led to, to Gambit originally. And then things just kind of went from there. But my original interest had more to do with, you know, how do you, uh, you know, optimize a building or something like that. And things have just kind of uh, branched out in different directions from mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So from this multiple experiences or multiple interests you had, what was the comment between sculpture and machine learning or when you have the genetic algorithms in Belgium, what's really was common between between the three of them? Yeah, um, so I think for me, um, I'm interested in, and I guess it's also some of the tools in, I guess, the role of computers um, or tools in, in the creative process. Um, and so with a, uh, with like, with some of these systems, you're kind of dealing with these emergent systems, right? And you're kind of interacting with them. If it's like a genetic algorithm or something like that, and you're maybe you're kind of guiding it somehow. And like any kind of generative design is now a, an agent or has some kind of role in, in this creative process. And so I think, you know, with maybe genetic algorithms, it's dealing with kind of optimization or emergence as this um, partner in the creative process. And so I think that was definitely one of the, the themes where I guess like mm -hmm. sculpture, I mean like, you know, sculpting things by hand is, um, I guess less interesting now 
for me as you know what does it mean to sculpt assisted by something and what if that thing you're assisted by is this kind of uh, an algorithm that can that can do things that humans can't do in terms of how it can think or or, um, or analyze and working alongside that so I think that was something that early on hmm. uh, that was that was an inspiration or yeah. a, a unifying uh, theme yeah so if I ask you what is misconceptions you you saw really or something you misunderstood wrong at the beginning and later on discovered that something wasn't right in your when you consider these approaches and we're taking this path, what are the most misconceptions you found when you have an artist dealing with now with uh, intelligent machine to create art? So what a misconception do you think you, you had already or someone or someone you talk with was misconceptions about the combination of two fields? Yeah, good question. So yeah, definitely, I guess I had I mean, it's a field of easy misconceptions. I guess um, with AI creative tools, I think um, maybe one misconception that is common, maybe among me early on, everyone else, is how much I feel like you're dealing with the AI versus just like dealing with the. I mean, obviously, it's very easy to like. I mean, everyone agrees that like the personification of these like uh, AI things is is kind of overblown and a lot of hype around it um mm. and people like to talk about dealing with the ai but you're as much dealing with the data and everyone else who contributed to that data so it i feel like it's as much about you and um you know every, the history or um kind of the the um yeah i guess the history of the data and who made it and how they made it as much as you are dealing with something that could be personified. So in that way, you're still kind of dealing with a lot of people um, in the way, you know, people deal with like institutional knowledge. You have this like, um, in a way, kind of just embodied institutional knowledge from all the people before that you're interacting with more so than this kind of like robot thing, mm -hmm. um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Consider this kind of intelligence or intuition compared to someone like you or others having a talent and a machine. How you see this comparison? Right, right. So yeah, there's definitely some nuance there where, for instance, you know, in a tool like ArtReader, you can create images that don't resemble anything from the training set. And this particular network called BigAnn happens to be really good at that because there's all these classes and you have these unexpected combinations. Mm -hmm. um, and certain people can be much better than others at exploring and discovering interesting pockets of it and so there's definitely um a skill there and i think some um networks or technologies you know have more um, room or capacity for people to develop their own skills within it um and it's definitely kind of this continuous thing where you could obviously have one network and everything just kind of um looks exactly like the training set and it's um and, it, and there's less room for kind of individual um, expressiveness within it mm -hmm. and you know a lot of that stuff in art reader does kind of look like that and I think that's still there's still a utility there in that it may help you kind of um, iterate through ideas but they're also on the other side of it in art reader there's some users who have styles that really are distinctive and I think mm -hmm. that is one sign that the tool has a good amount of expressive capability but obviously there are trade-offs there mm -hmm. um, yeah, but to your to the other point, I mean, I, the AI is definitely not or the, 
know, whatever you call it, the, the neural network, the, the GAN. You know, it, it, it's just like, um, I think the invention of the, the camera. I think it, uh, it's just like a new medium, a new way of working. Um, and, you know, artists will, will learn how to use it to, to express their own ideas. Mm-hmm. Idea and what kind of challenges you have with the team and updates you expecting for Artpreda? Sure. So the idea originally came from my interest in in some of the interactive evolutionary mm-hmm. genetic algorithms I was reading about. Um, particularly, there was a project by um, computer science professor Kenneth Stanley called Pickbreeder. Um, that Gambreeder, so okay, so Arbreeder was originally called Gambreeder, and it was named after Pickbreeder, not to confuse everyone. But um, and so Pickbreeder was actually just a computer science research. Well, it, it was more than that, but it was, it was, it was you know, it was computer science research, and it was published in a computer science journal, and it was exploring the role of. Um, so it was this field of novelty search and the value in the genetic algorithm of preserving novelty in the population, and they found this interesting thing that. Um, you know, if you seek, uh, you know, novelty or diversity in your population, you kind of avoid these local minima. But then, if you have a human in the loop, kind of saying what is what is interesting, it does it does better. Humans have this unique capacity to uh, classify interestingness, um, and by having them in the loop, it actually improved the algorithms. You have humans improving, helping algorithms, helping humans, and they made this kind of interactive explorer where humans can kind of explore. Um, the space and breed things is this method of exploring high dimensional spaces and um, other inspired by that as kind of just like uh, part of the creative process. And so uh, when I saw like, you know, and so with genetic algorithms, you have this one problem where um, if you have kind of a very good uh, emergent property, um, mm-hmm. meaning like, so in genetic algorithms, you have this like genotype and you have a phenotype and if you have a, if you want a really complex phenotype, you have some kind of uh, emergent mapping between your genotype and phenotype. But if you have this like complex emergent mapping, it's you, it's then very hard to also have an a, um, an encoding or, or mapping such that uh, the crossover works. Meaning, if you have two parents, their child would resemble them. And genetic algorithms, mm-hmm. you know, this like mating thing is, is kind of core to it. And you can imagine. You know, if humans had a child and the child wasn't anything like the parents, evolution couldn't work. And so that was something I was struggling with. And then when I saw, um, uh, you know, GAMs and these latent vectors, it had all these nice properties that, you know, hard-coded genetic encodings, Hmm. you know, struggle with, which is that you could have this mapping from like a compressed latent vector to an image. But also you have this like the exact nice property you want of... You know, if you mix two vectors, the, the image looks just like the child. And so you have all these properties that you would, you would want in a genetic algorithm. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, well, then, you know, mm. it'd be really interesting to have a latent vector as your genetic encoding. And, you know, what if I did that with um, with this thing called BigGAN that just come out? And so, and as it turned out, that, I mean, it allowed a lot of the, it, it also worked to make the GAN more accessible because, you know, it was like a IPython notebook to interact with it. You would plug in, um, a, you know, a random latent vector and you'd pick one of the thousand classes and you, you get a dog or a hamburger. But, you know, there's this infinite, infinite space of super interesting things that you would have never got into without um, a simple interface like that. So the, so the goal was also just to, what if you just made this really accessible to the people who don't need to know anything about programming? So that was some of the, 
That was that was kind of how Gambreeder um, originally started, and it started off just a weekend project, um, just with one mm-hmm. network called called Began, which was made by um, by Google, um, and then just kind of growing since then. Yeah, great. So we have a couple of questions from uh, people from Reddit uh, machine learning community. Uh, someone is asking you. Uh, he would love to love to know a general notation uh, behind what is happening in Autobreeder, and he is very curious to do something like Autobreeder, but using his own photos. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So generally, what's happening is you know each image, um, you know, it's made by this GAN called Big GAN, and so it has just like a a vector and array of numbers that encode it. And so, you know, mutation is just randomly, um, you know, varying those numbers and crossovers is, you know, mm-hmm. average, you know, mixing it up two different images. And so this is, this is a biological metaphor around array operators, essentially, um, and then being fed through the GAN. And yeah, so uploading your own images would be great. Um, the problem is, you know, because GANs, um, don't allow you to input your own image into the latent space directly. Um, so for instance, for portraits, what has to be done is there's this optimization process that will try to find the, the, the point in the latent space or the image that most closely resembles the image you uploaded. So that's to do this kind of compute intensive search process to find the nearest image. And that's what it does by the uploading process. And that works okay for portraits because of certain properties that it has, specifically mm-hmm. the faces are aligned and the space of faces, you know, there's gonna be two eyes or a nose, a mouth, and then maybe rotation. But something like any, you know, photo possible, you know, it, it would require a GAN that generalized to, you know, every photo possible, which isn't really, there's some stuff in that field that's very interesting, but um, like research to improve the encoding, but it's still a technical challenge in an area of research. And it would have to require constraining the bounds of, of the image space somewhat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think this is related to another question of someone asking you if the deep learning models and more specifically generative model can be manipulated uh, via uh, latent variables. He said that there's a lot of work recently on a style gen, which represents a new way of navigating with boundaries of uh, learn distribution. So he asks us could be a new creation tool, but there's many of them from his perspective more depressing or becoming depressing. And he asks you that do you think this find an interesting way discovering important, at least useful direction in, in this regard? Sure, yeah. So a lot of the um, work in our creator after training the models is creating custom um, latent directions, or as they're called in our creator genes, um, for the generative models, which you know become kind of the controls that allow navigating within it. And, and, and thus far, it's all been done manually, meaning you know find some kind of classifier or code some kind of um, analytics for each image, and then use those results to create a, a direction which is just done by a like, uh, you know, linear, linear regression. Um, and, but it has to require, you know, having a classifier for the thing you want to have a classifier for. Um, and in some cases, you know, there are existing, you know, face attribute classifiers that can be used on the face model. Um, and there's been an active area of research and actually just 
I think last month an interesting paper came out about unsupervised methods mm. where, um, and that's something we're playing around with now where it, it will actually do another process where you, um, as was explained to me, keep, you keep the generator fixed and you train a, and you basically train the set of genes and a new discriminator so that it finds a set of genes that are, uh, in effect, it makes them like orthogonal because you have this discriminator um, encouraging them to, or because it's rewarded, rewarding how easy it detects each one separately, um, it's able to distinguish them, thus making them kind of orthogonal and discovering interesting directions that the GAN had learned on its own. And so I think that um, is very interesting. That's something we're working to, to bring into our reader now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. So there's more question about, uh, I think, more philosophical questions. Someone is asking you that, how do you see the kind of technology and art becoming mainstream in the future, or if it's what will happen? And what kind of new technology you are excited to incorporate in, in your work in the future? Yeah, cool. So. The way I see it is, um, you know, I think what's really going to be most exciting and, and transformative is taking a lot of the creative processes that exist and making them more accessible. Um, and also maybe just helping with kind of iteration and ideation, you know, so let's say uh, Pixar, I don't think AI or machine learning, you know, will help them make a better film. I mean. It's not really a limiting factor there. They can make pretty amazing films. But, you know, maybe more people could begin to make their own short films, you know, with generative voice, um, uh, synthetic videos. Um, and you had more people have access to these things because the barrier to entry has been lowered. Um, and then on the other side of it, professionals may be able to iterate our prototype a lot more quickly, where they can maybe sketch something and quickly turn it into... Mm. into maybe a short, you know, preview of, of, of the video just by, and I think um, that could also, you know, be viewed through the lens of a higher, I think it was like a higher level of, of abstraction of creative work. Um, almost like having a, being a creative director, right? Where you can interact with things um, via the medium of language. You can tell your, your underlings, I like this direction. Uh, show me more things like this or, uh, you know, I don't like that, show me this. Or, you know, do two prototypes here. And that's how creative directors often work. And they're not less creative, um, but they're kind of working at a higher level of abstraction where they can communicate things, you know, here's what I want, here's what I don't want. Um, and I think that's very powerful. And so I think um, allowing more people to mm -hmm. work like that um, is very exciting. Or something that's just kind of off limits, like making a short film or animation um, is off limits to people. So you kind of have both sides where on one end, you're kind of lowering the barrier to entry, and on the other side, you're also allowing prototyping and exploration to happen a lot more quickly. And so with ArtReader, I would say, you know, a lot of people making images is, is not accessible, and so they use it because now they can make images. But there's also concept artists who know how to make images, but now they can iterate and explore more quickly. And so I think uh, just that in more, um, you know, in more areas and further developed is, is where I think um, things are going with exciting. And so mm -hmm. I think for the technology that excites me is, um, I think some of the video coming out um, is very exciting. And yeah, I think voice, video, mm. a lot of directions that I think are very exciting. Yeah. I think this is an also a nice question. 
So I was asking, where do you believe creativity if artwork or any image generated by art breeder lies? With the user choices for mutation of breeding or with art breeder doing mutation and breeding? I think this could be clarify more uh, how, how, what's really interesting for you. Yeah, good, good question. And yeah. so I think I say art breeder as a way to to stimulate ideas, um, a way to kind of augment the exploration and discovery process, kind of a tool for before you have the idea um, to help you explore and discover. And so I think a lot of the really exciting creative work comes from the interpretation of the images, not the images themselves. I think they're almost um, just a vehicle for that or maybe like the raw material and it's how you combine them together. And so, in that sense, it's all how you interpret them and how you it and how you guide the system. And I think the randomness can serve to to inspire. I, mean, I don't think there's anything. Uh, I mean, it depends on definitions of creativity. You know, can creativity itself or can randomness itself be creative? Uh, I don't. I don't really think so. But I think maybe how you, how you can interpret it um, could be and. And I do think it's a lot of you know learning how you guide the system is definitely a, 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 a something that can be learned and you know people can learn to do it and you know even very simple things can compound like picking one image out of six you do it enough times you get this kind of really high branching factor and you, and you learn to navigate the space and so I think there's a bit of, of, of craft in that and I think also a lot of the creativity comes in from how you decide to put the images together and how you decide to interpret them. Mm -hmm. Great. So where the question, um, where artists ever ask it whether they wanted to provide their art for training or was it simply taken? And what if someone doesn't want to, to share um, their images to be used for that? Yeah, that's a good question. And here's how, how I do it. So, I mean, I think it depends on the distinction between using something and learning from something and you know maybe maybe people agree with me on this but i think you know when you put art out into the world there's kind of understanding that people mm -hmm. are going to get inspired by it and they may learn from it um and so you know i don't think if you train a model on a data set the output from that model counts as derivative work um mm -hmm. from a copyright point of view of the training set and the same way that i think if you were to go to a museum let's say and look at all the artworks and then go home and try to draw something similar that those things you looked at, you know, count as, you know, are your work counts as technically derivative work? I think maybe it's important to cite it. Um, but I think that's part of, of sharing artwork is the expectation others will learn from it. So that's my, that's my perspective on it. Mm -hmm. And I forward that as an artist, do you have any inspiration for creating the art? Because it's like slicing project. So that's kind of new ideas when you feed it to Jan. How you get this inspiration for that? I see a lot of my stuff just as experiments, really. And so I kind of see a lot of them. At least the last four years, um, a lot of it has just been the next experiment in a, in a series of work in terms of creating and interacting with emergence and emergent systems and furthering creativity. And so I just see it kind of as a line of research in each project as testing some idea and then, you know, testing the next idea that comes after it. 
that's where I've been a lot of the the last few years of my work has been if it's um, like the generative corals or the floor plans or arc reader, it's kind of in the series of like, right, how do you, you know, create controllable, guidable, you know, um, generative tools that, you know, can further, you know, augment human creativity. And mm-hmm. so in that sense, it's just kind of um, a series of, of, of experiments. Mm-hmm. So the question about the copywriting uh, now, how do you think copyright cases will be handled for generated art form? This is a question. And following that, for instance, if one uses a pre-trained model from Invada to further train on their own data legally collected in order to generate novel images, how would the copyright of the image work out? Would generated images be artists or the model owner's property? <laughs> Yeah, that is a very good question. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, first of all, I'm not I'm not a lawyer. I should say that. Uh-huh. Um, but my um, understanding, I've talked to lawyers, is that in so, in many cases, people just don't know. There's not a lot of precedent for many of these cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, at least in the case of Art Reader, for instance, because the, there's no legal precedent for some of these decisions about you know copyright and ownership. Um, and it's unclear if, you know, where the courts might've come down, you know, had two users shoot each other over an image, um, where the courts may have come down. So at least starting off personally, at our reader, the terms of service took a conservative approach where we assume maybe the courts gave the rights to the users, but it, re- it requires everyone to, when you use our reader, to agree to put all your images into the creative domain to kind of keep it simple. I mean, I think our reader is an additional layer of complexity where you have, you have the tool, you have the data set, you have the model, you have the software that runs the model, but then you also have the the image you branch off of, right? And so you have this like very deep stack mm. of things that are involved uh, in, in the process. And I mean, in short, it becomes kind of impossible to, to give, you know, percentage, you know, who owns what of each thing. Um, from our producer's point of view, I just kind of think there's like it's a value in citation or referencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has to, you know, you know, in other AI stuff, um, it obviously depends on the license of maybe the code or the model. And um, yeah, if you take a model but then you fine tune it, you know, is that different? Or how much do you have to fine tune it? You know, what if what if no literal floating point number in the fine tune model is the same as the original one? Can that be considered? Um, the same. So I, I think my understanding a lot of the, the legal precedent for that hasn't been resolved, and in some cases it depends on the on the um, the the, um, the specific repositories um, licensing. Um, but in general, I don't believe that. Uh, the, yeah, I, I tend to be pretty more open in that. You know, mm-hmm. don't worry too much about. My personal view is kind of like the post ownership in a sense where. That is my kind of view I bring with art readers is not to worry as much about copyright and just accept that all creativity is borrowing off other people to a degree and just having a culture of citation and referencing mm. um, is what's important. I guess like in academia, right, where you, you, you realize that, you know, any research project, there's a deep stack of tools and techniques you're building upon and you're not worrying about fighting over every ownership you're just you have a, a you know a culture of referencing and citation mm-hmm. um and so that's what i i'm kind of a proponent of yeah 
So I would like to ask you, after this work you have done, do you think really can AI create a true art? Because I don't know how you level your expectation level is really fulfilled, or you still expect more from the like art breeder. So if we answer the question, can you consider this a true art or not? Well, um, I guess yes and no would be. Well, this is art reader and there's a lot of AI stuff here. I mean, I think it's a tool. I mean, mm -hmm. I think so. Stuff from art reader maybe it's an art because users made it. And I think, you know, machine learning technologies are another tool. And, you know, maybe they're a bit of a step change the way the camera was. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, they're a tool in artists' hands and artists can and will learn how to use. And in art reader, I mean, maybe there is a kind of meta artwork to the, the system and the network of all the images and the relationships. And there's kind of like an art reader, the artwork of the community and that act of doing a collaborative. And there's individual images that are some artworks. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on the, ten, the intent of the person who made them. Some of them are just, um, kind of a more functional thing to maybe if you're doing a character to, you know, you just want to figure out a character really quickly and it's kind of a, a, a iterative sketch and those are maybe more sketches. And then, you know, maybe some are artworks, but it really depends on the, um, like any tool, it can be used to make art. It depends on how, how it's done by the artist, how it's used by the artist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if we ask about the application of Autopedia, aside from like entertainment or, do you think this could be used in, maybe in not good uses? Are you afraid about misuses of this tool? Do you have this concern with yourself? It's, it's something I've thought about. Um, you know, there are definitely things like deep fakes mm. that many people are concerned about. Uh, thus far into ArtReader, I haven't seen it. It hasn't really happened. Um, you know, you know, it's possible to make faces that maybe exaggerate, you know, maybe racial stereotypes or things like that. It's possible, but I, I think any tool can be misused. Um, you can use Photoshop to do all kinds of things. And I think that mm -hmm. comes to the territory with a new tool. Uh, but thus far in Art Reader, I haven't really seen anything mm -hmm. malicious being done with it, um, mm -hmm. yeah. um, you're probably already a domain expert. I, I generally think making it more accessible just makes it accessible to casual people. And, um, uh, so I haven't seen it thus far. Okay. It, it seems, but, I, but I'm looking out for it. Mm -hmm. So for the good attention, if we just want to make, uh, like how we can increase or augment human creativity, how this ki kind of tools can really help people to be creative. How you make sure about that? Or how you see it, the feedback, rather than machine learning community or artists, do you think the people who are not involved in both to splint are interested in this kind of tools? Uh, yeah, so I think it, it may do so in, in different ways. I definitely think that uh, the ability to iterate more quickly and to work at a higher level of abstraction mm -hmm. to be very powerful. And so, you know, there's this idea of like being able to work kind of like a creative director where you can maybe say, express things at a higher level that iterate, and, but you're still the one driving it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I believe, you know, 
controls are the ones that you know keep users you know centered and, and driving it and you don't tell users what to do or how they should do things but you allow them to to explore and discover and, and you try to try to empower them and then i think there's lowering barrier to entry mm-hmm. and enabling kind of a higher level of working and i think both of those things um are powerful okay what's something still missing now as in the like computer and something you would like to improve like the computer in general if we speak about the computer perspective something still they can do as you are asked yeah so an art reader i mean it's still very limited in many ways mm. i mean the whole idea of the latent space you know as, a, as a navigating it is empowering but also very limiting right where you're, you're forced to stick within these confines or bounds and i mean that is i guess a big part of it is from the direction that art reader takes where you know you're, you're limited to the status set and so i think the ability to do things um more intentionally as well is something that's missing. So our creator, you know, it's found in this idea of exploration and discovery and just navigating a high dimensional latent space. And I think a lot of creativity can, you know, is a, is an active exploration and discovery and, and it's combinatorial thing that things to combine. Uh, but much of it is also uh, intentional as well, where you have an idea you want to express. And so that's an area that I think, you know, other, other tools do that maybe slightly better i mean picks to picks for instance you can you have a whole you know a larger input space where you can draw your own image and it'll transform it and so i think ways you combine um both more intentional acts with the open-ended discovery process finding ways of combining those i think is something that is that is still missing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so i haven't figured it out yet yeah so is this something concerning for you when people doesn't really can't distinguish between the work generated by machine and artists is something really concerning for you like competition maybe no um i don't think there's really any competition in that people can't discern it uh i think some of the portraits yeah they are very good but i don't think it it's not really competition i think that many users are you know draw their own portrait they're doing you know uh, they have total freedom, and so they and they're, and they're expressing some kind of specific idea that can't be done in the network. And so it's very different ways of working, and I don't think there's a direct competition there. Mm-hmm. And if I ask you, what is something really fascinating or interesting have been done by integrating machine learning and art? For example, we have now Benjamin who is doing screenwriter, automatic screenwriter for film. I don't know if you have something interesting you saw the art and our machine intelligence, machine intelligence rather than uh, sculpture. Something was fascinating. Yeah, I think there's a few um, interesting things being done right now. I think um, let's see. I mean, I think the, there's people like like the artist Scott Eden who I think is doing very good work where they're creating their own data set. Um, you know, and then they're training their own modified uh, GAN on it, and then they're kind of developing um, a craft around it. Um, I think people who are kind of developing their own tools, I think is an interesting space. Um, 
And I think to have a lot of ownership over this stuff, you may have to be creating your own kind of tools and your own data set um, as well in some cases. I think that one is very compelling. There's a lot of experiments. I think it's still in the early days for a lot of the other stuff that I've been seeing, like text. Um, you know, I've been seeing a whole deal of experiments, but I think things are still very uh, early there. And a lot of it is like a still feels like a very experimental phase to me. Mm -hmm. And this is really interesting about the design because you highlight at the beginning, you just something so robotic, so deformation and this kind of issues about how this could be incorporated in helping soft robotics field, for example. Yeah, so, um, uh, kind of the interactive um, evolutionary work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of that, I think, uh, you know, is... Uh, I mean, a lot of it is being done in, in some of the soft robotic stuff. There is the, um, a lot of them use uh, this type of like CPPN content pattern producing networks, I think, for the soft robotics that they're optimizing. I mean, yeah, a lot of the genetic algorithms and the artificial life work, um, at least right now, is, is being done in soft robotics. Like it's that lineage of work that maybe started off with Carl Sims' Virtual Creatures back in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. I guess that lineage of work seems to be mostly be continued by the soft robotics uh, community today, as, at least as far as what I know. Um, and so there's a huge, yeah, there's a huge amount of back and forth. Um, and in many cases they're doing it. I mean, um, so I think a lot of the open-ended discovery algorithms that are being applied there are super compelling, and I think I, I look to the soft robotic stuff a lot for that. Um, I think the yeah, ideas about complexity and emergence, uh, you know, you know, is is deeply related there, um, and in many cases, you know, that's that's work they're already doing. Um, and mm -hmm. and in terms of the design tools, yeah, um, I think. That's very interesting as well. Yeah, a lot of the robotic stuff, even though they're being optimized for maybe a few objectives for how well they can traverse land and walk around. And maybe once they can do that, there will need to be a human in the loop, maybe picking certain attributes, picking certain trade-offs, and maybe uh, there'd be a value to kind of a higher level reading interface uh, where maybe you know breeding has this capacity to explore high, very high dimensional spaces very well. Mm -hmm. And so it, it could definitely come back. I, mean, I think it's generalized in that regard where, you know, like Art Breeder, it's just about navigating a very high dimensional space in an intuitive way. And that I think generalizes to many domains. I think soft robotics is a, but do you think it's is, a good, is a, is a good yeah. example. Yeah. Sorry? But do you think it could be challenges for design, like the desired goal for the design of robotics, for example, because it's highly nonlinear system sometimes than the material itself. Do you think this could add a little more complexity as well? Definitely, definitely. Um, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not an expert in soft robotics, like in soft robotics, but I guess, I guess one point is that I think areas where it's more powerful are a combination of like objective and subjective measures mm. where. And so, you know, maybe there are areas of that in soft robotics that I'm less familiar with, but it seems more, it's more kind of objective measures that are being worked on now where maybe in other domains like generative architecture where you're optimizing the structure, but it's not moving, for instance, you have this mixture of objective and subjective measures. And in that regard, I think this kind of tools, I think are very valuable where 
yeah, I should have been really kind of figuring out how to how to balance these two. Um, and if there was an area of soft robotics where you had maybe a, a, a mixture of objective and subjective measures, you know, there could be uh, possibly interesting. Mm-hmm, great. So if I ask you how do you see uh, this kind of art and machine intelligence would go in the next decade, do you think this, how you would like foresee it in, in next decades? Something, you, when you let your imagination to think something completely novel in your mind. I think one thing that's very compelling is, you know, is lowering the barrier entry in a kind of a, a radical way. You know, what if anyone could make their own short film? Mm. And, you know, it wouldn't be a, a picture level quality, but does it need to be? I think everyone has stories that they want to tell. Um, and I think it's a, a core part of, you know, of life and you know sharing um is you know is a creative act um expressing and you know and and is creative act and allowing more creativity in those domains and you know what if anyone can make their own short film you know there's a lot of barriers there in terms of labor Mm -hmm. uh keyframing whatever and machine learning could try to lower those barriers and allow anyone to make their own game allow anyone to make their own short film i think that's uh I think that's very compelling and it seems to be possibly where things are converging now with, you know, you have like the deep fake voices and mm. synthetic video and, and, you know, there could be a convergence in that direction that I think is, is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what's also interesting about the building that can have a memory as well. When I think this new, new this kind of art that have distribution about like uh, the flight passes and, and around the year and then visualizing a building or image. I think it's also interesting the building can have a memories or visualize stuff in the building, exterior building. So yeah, there's cool there's cool ideas about that as well. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Building analytics. Yeah, there's many different paths. I guess my mm. I, I focus on the. Yeah, there's many different things. I, I don't mean it's only that. But I guess where I yeah, where me personally focus on is this idea of making complexity accessible. Mm. I guess is the area that I've been focused on recently. Um, you know, because so many mediums are becoming increasingly complex, and how do you, you know, not mean like uh, prevent that from only allowing certain people to create for those mediums and so machine learning will do a lot of things in terms of yeah understanding analyzing buildings for instance or, or, or what have you um or, mm-hmm. or uh, analyzing certain things based off kind of data sets but i think it also in terms of design tools will yeah will will make things more accessible as well mm-hmm. yeah we are closing to the end, so I would like to ask you, do you think ego is important for artists or researchers in your polls? Because now we are in ego-driven, uh, maybe, a world sometimes. So do you, in your, in your expertise, do you think ego is important? And how, how, how you make sure that it is really in a good intention, not bad intentions of the ego? That's a good question. Um, God, you ask it. Is ego important? Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, in some sense, we're all motivated to put our work out there and make a name for ourselves. I mean, I guess it's like the same with competitiveness. I guess there's like healthy competitiveness in a sense, and there's unhealthy competitiveness. There's competitiveness that pushes you. Um, I think ego, I mean, I guess there's like, I guess any human emotion is there's a healthy balance of it and it could be any extreme 
that's my view on many human emotions that they exist for reasons and the, the extreme version of any you know emotion is a is a weakness you know you don't mm-hmm. want to be too confident or underconfident um you know and i think you know with ego i think you know maybe ego ends up being thought of as arrogance i think it's important to you know take pride in one's work but also recognize that uh you know you're part of this big system of creativity and so i think all humans are a little egotistical but maybe it, it, it's helpful in in driving the work in a, in a healthy amount um i don't know i'm just mm. thinking out loud here but um but yeah i mean i think it's, it's important to have some yeah I'm, in your work i suppose yeah. um <laughs> I'm also interested that you know. Kind of a long answer. Yeah, yeah. I'm just not as an as your artist. How this reflects you in in your person? Because sometimes, when you have a talent or something, you can escape from stress or anxiety from going to drawing, for example, or this. But I'm asking you what you learn from being artist for you as a person. How is this reflecting to you? So. I think I'm a very, uh, I get very obsessive with things. Um, so that way it's kind of part of who I am. I'm very obsessive and I kind of just fall into rabbit holes and can't get out for sometimes years. And so, you know, I've, I, I've worked on projects where I just basically don't go outside for months until it's done. Um, and so I think there's, I, I don't know, I kind of get, joy out of working on projects mm-hmm. um it's, it's like a form of escapism i suppose like like reading books is a way to kind of escape into a world of ideas and um you know for me it's just a kind of satisfying comfortable mm-hmm. place to be that i enjoy being in um and yeah maybe it's a form of escapism i don't know uh but for me i guess i feel very passionate about maybe certain uh business ideas i think Uh, I'm a very visual person, so I just seeing certain things or seeing ideas manifest. There's just a a joy to that um, that I have that I think uh, mm-hmm. drives some of my work. And I think the last few years, the fact that it's kind of um, crystallized around a certain end goal has been very motivating. And so, yeah, it's just it's just a kind of uh, just how I, I guess it's just how I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would like to ask you what is the most inspiring book was really uh, interesting for you uh, you have ever read? Most inspiring book I've ever read? Mm. Ooh, that's a tough question. I guess I've read a few. It's hard to to point to just one. I'm trying to think now. Um, if I had to pick only one, I mean, can I pick a few? <laughs> uh, is that cheating? Um, The most one, maybe one. I, I, I think. Most inspiring book I've ever read. I don't know if I don't. I don't know if I had just one. Mm. I think um, different points in my life, different ones have kind of come together. Um, I, I, I mean, I recently. I'll just. I mean, books I've read recently. Um, you know, there was like some of Christopher Alexander's *The Timeless Way of Building*. Um, I did. I'd actually I like the book a lot. Um, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned by Kenneth Stanley and, mm-hmm. and Joel Lehman, who created Pick Breeder. I thought I really enjoyed that book as a um, 
an example of going kind of from basic research to larger questions about creativity. Um, there was a book on creativity called Creativity that I read. Um, that was very inspiring. I don't know. Those, those are three. Um, mm. If that's okay. <laughs> okay. So do you have any robots or AI systems, uh, intelligence system in your home? So I, I live in a artist house right now where there's a few roboticists who make a lot of robots. Okay. So, so do you have robots? house, but I didn't make them. Okay. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So now we, we just have two questions to the end. First one is, what's your advice for people uh, interested in the field of art and AI? What what's advice you give them to to be excel in the field? Because sometimes... You have, as from your story, you had stumbling sometimes plugs and until you prove uh, yourself and something you're passionate about and interested as well. And sometimes it's, it's, it has a lot of difficulties in that. So if you can give advice in this regard, what could be the advice? Sure. Um, and I don't know if I'm the best person to give advice, but happy to try. Okay. I think um, what happened to work for me in my case, and, and everyone's different, of course, is... I kind of um, found some area that I got very obsessed with and I just kind of spent a few years working on it and the first few years were basically kind of in isolation, not really sharing with anyone. Mm. Um, and it was lonely. And But I think I happened to have this like, just kind of obsessed with a certain vision um, and I didn't really look at what else was being done and it allowed me to kind of end up in a different place and I think um, there's so many interesting directions that maybe are being overlooked I mean I think the field right now is very um, excitement driven which is great motivating factor but it has the downside that it's also mm. a bit of a convergent operator and what's currently exciting um, and I, I would just say you know what, what is really cool is there's so many different interesting paths and directions like open-endedness or whatever that you know if you just start combining some of these like maybe peripheral things it, it doesn't take very long before you're you know the person doing this like weird combination of stuff mm-hmm. um so I, I guess i would advise one i don't know just find maybe some things just find whatever most interesting to you and then just keep maybe uh challenging yourself to be like, what's the next kind of experiment I can do? And then also don't worry about what the feedback is originally, because whatever you're doing is going to be bad at first. And I think that's one challenge of like, I mean, I think social media is great for being able to share things, but it also can be a little depressing, you know, if no one cares about the thing you posted, for instance, or it doesn't look good right away, it can be a little mm. demoralizing. So it definitely has to be taken into account. And so I guess I would say, don't worry about what anyone thinks about it at first and just find, you know, the thing that's most genuinely interesting to you and, and keep following it. Yeah, that's a good advice. So finally, I would like to ask you if uh, you have any final words like to share uh, with the soft robotics or robotics community and machine learning. Final words. Sure. So, I mean, it's very, a big honor to be on the podcast. I, um, soft robotics is very inspiring to me. I'm definitely not, I don't see myself as you know a domain expert in it i'm kind of someone who's like i feel like i'm an imposter in a lot of different worlds and trying to but then kind of trying to pull them together 
I think um, I think there's a lot of room for be- like interesting, compelling experiments and, and things that maybe border on art in this world that I'm that I'm interested in. Maybe there's room for mm. um, in terms of emergence. You know, I'd love to do a soft robotic simulation of just growing flowers. I, I don't know. That's and interesting. So, yeah, I think that would be very interesting. Be about I'm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I had a word, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I guess um, it's just an interesting domain and world and something that luckily part of it's inspiring for me. And um, I think it's a, it's a just a, there's so many fundamental ideas here about um, emergence and optimization mm. that I think are, are so useful in so many other domains. And so that's what um, interests me in it. And so hopefully I can play some small part in connecting different dots together. Yeah, exactly. So thanks so much. It was such an honor to have you and sharing your interesting work about art and machine intelligence. So above I release of robotics community, I would like to thank you for for your time. Thanks so much. Oh yeah, it was it was great to be here. I appreciate it. Thank you.